All right, guys, I'm going to start us off here in Second Peter. We'll start with the first five, I'm sorry, first four verses. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, and his divine power has given to us all things that per pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these through these you might be partakers of his of, i'm sorry of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust Father, I just pray today for your help. Ask for your help. We make our requests known to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel today to give us perfect understanding by your word and by your spirit the things you have for us today. Father, we want to understand the promises. We want to understand the invitation. And we want to understand what it means to partake in your divine nature. We admit and confess that these are understandings that are beyond us, that are greater than us, far too wonderful for our carnal minds to grasp. So we pray for spiritual eyes and spiritual ears. We pray for the spirit of truth to guide us into all truth today. And we pray for sanctification by your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So, um, Let me highlight uh, verse 3 that says, so, so Peter is writing, we know Peter is writing to the saints. Saints would be those who are, who are authentically born again. So what he is talking about, we can know, is specifically ava available only to those who are born again and really can only be understood that by those who are born again. Even though uh, we may be authentically born again, these are still big, big topics, big promises, big ideas, a big revelation to grasp. And that revelation specifically is by his divine power, he has given all things that we need to walk in godliness. And specifically, he says, these, these uh, having been given these precious promises that we may be partakers in his divine nature. That text hopefully makes way more sense today 
having looked at and gone through what we've gone through the last two weeks, right? Because remember last week we talked specifically about how in Hebrews 8, if you remember, the author of Hebrews is talking about the second covenant and he's kind of, um, he's giving us um, some information about the second covenant, specifically that it is a more excellent ministry, if you remember, right? A better covenant established on what? Better promises. Okay, that's a very important text. The second covenant is a better covenant because it is established on better promises. And he finishes that section of text in Hebrews 8 by saying, um, we can know that the old covenant is obsolete and fading away because this new covenant has been established. You guys remember that text? And, and where hopefully we will never make the mistake again regarding that text and it's speaking about things in the old covenant that are obsolete and fading away. What we can know is that that was not pertaining to any side of God's part of that equation, right? What were God's part of the equation? The parts that are absolutely perfect, that are absolutely eternal, that will never change, that needed no change, that will never go away, that didn't need to go away, that needed no adjustment in any way because they're God's. It's his heart, his desire, his will, his invitation, uh, and center to the, central to that are his ways, his commandments, and his law. And the, and the error and the deception that we've exposed that we will never, ever, ever fall victim to again is that what is obsolete and fading away regarding the old covenant is none of that stuff. None of God's perfect stuff. If it's a two-sided equation, just think God's side of the equation is never to change. It's never going to change. So that leaves then the other side of the equation. What's the other side of the equation? You and I. And what is uh, the Spirit teaching us is that the second covenant was needed because we needed to be dealt with. And what do I mean by we? I mean humanity, right? With our fallen sin nature that we are all born with, our, our carnal heart and our carnal mind, that was what needed to be dealt with. That is what could not submit to the ways of God. That is what could not love God. That is what could not hear from God. That is what could not see God, could not trust God, could not follow God, could not represent God, could not give God what God wanted. It was humanity that had to be dealt with. It was the need for humanity to be dealt with. That's why a second covenant needed to be established. And so we can know because the author says that this second covenant is established on better promises and that you and I are what needed to be dealt with in the second covenant, that these better promises are going to deal specifically with you and I, right? It ain't a promise that the law is going away. It ain't a promise that God's requirements are going away. It ain't, it ain't a promise that everything that God wanted was going to be changed and made easier. None of that was promised, right? So what was promised? Well, it's it's a beautiful thing that we did last week when we went back and looked at what was prophesied was coming in the second covenant, right? And as we might suspect, what was promised 
was going to come as a part of the second covenant were two things that were very specifically going to be given to us to change us. Okay, so now let's go back. We're going to keep, just keep your finger in second Peter and go back with me to verse three. His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So what that is saying is that godliness is now available to us, right? By what? It's in the same sentence. What is godliness available to us by? His divine power. You guys reading that with me? It says, as his divine power has given to us all things pertaining to life and godliness. That is an awesome reminder, right? That there is someone that is the hero of this, of this story and it is not you and I, right? The old covenant and the failure of the old covenant and the, the absolutely crystal clear message that fallen humanity cannot love God cannot obey God, cannot represent God, that was not a mistake, right? It was not a mistake for God to establish that covenant. It was not a mistake for God to clearly communicate what he wants, what his desires are, a holy set-apart people who are obedient to him, who walk in his ways, whose life show a distinct difference from the rest of the world, through whom God can show the whole world that he is real, all of that was communicated through the Old Covenant, right? And that whole, a whole Old Covenant ended in an absolute train wreck, which was the absolute perfect example to show us what? Mankind needs a Savior, right? We cannot do this on our own. We cannot give God what God wants on our own. So it makes sense that Peter would say that it's by his divine power that a life of godliness is now available to us. Right? You seen what he's saying there? He's saying this is from God. It's power from God that even makes godliness and holiness available. Beautiful. I know I've read 2 Peter many, many times. It's never made more sense to me than it does right now. I've never had such perfect clarity. And the clarity all starts with this perfect uh, reality that what needed to change as it relates to the making obsolete of the first covenant and the establishing of a second covenant, what needed to change is you and I. And so... It all pointed to Christ, right? It all leads to Christ. It's all about Christ. He's the, he's the champion. He's the center of the story. As John says in Revelation 5, behold the line of the tribe of Judah. The root of David has done what? Conquered. And he is worthy to take the scroll and open the seven seals. So when Christ died on the cross, saints, listen to me. When he died on the cross, it was to establish a better covenant with better promises. It wasn't to motivate us to try harder. Are you hearing me? 
because there's lots and lots and lots of people sitting in the church right now who are not born again, who are looking at Christ's work on the cross as motivation. Look at what he did for you, so you need to try harder. Try harder to do what? Bend the flesh to obey. Bend the flesh to submit and keep God's commandments. Bend the flesh to be holy because he is holy. That is, as, as the heart of all false religion is, that's all self-righteousness. Right, so we need to hear loud and clear that what Jesus did on the cross was specifically to establish a new covenant that has better promises. Those better promises are specifically so that you and I can be changed. And so what the prophets said long ago, right, the manifold wisdom of God being made known through the prophets to the earth, his plan to get what he's always wanted was for humanity to be given two things, which are what? A heart of flesh, complete with the law of God written on it, and a brand new spirit, his very Holy Spirit that would move us to keep those commandments. And what Peter is saying here, read it one more time with me. His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to godliness. It's God's power that gives us everything we need to walk in godliness. He continues, through the knowledge of him who called us by, by glory and virtue, verse 4, by which, we have, he, by which have been given to us, what? Exceedingly great and precious, what? Promises. Exceedingly great and precious promises. What's the second covenant established on? Better promises. What's Peter talking about here? Those promises. What? Promises given by God's divine power so that we have everything we need to walk in godliness. And that those through these, through what? The promises, you may be partakers of the divine nature. Listen to what Peter is saying there. He says, through these, through what? The better promises. What are the promises? A new heart and a new spirit. Through those promises of a new heart and a new spirit, we can be partakers in the human nature submitting to God's will. Is that what it says? No. We can be partakers in the flesh being disciplined to obey God. Is that what it says? Nope. The promises are not for either of those. The promises are for you and I to be partakers in what? A divine nature. A literal, different nature. What needed to change in the covenant? Not God's side of the equation, our side of the equation. Now we can know even more specifically, it was the nature of humanity that needed to change. Right? Because what is the carnal nature? The enemy of God. Right? Enmity against God. Sin against God, haters of God, cannot submit to the law of God or will it ever, foolishness to anything of the spirit. It was that nature, that sin nature that needed to change. So what, what changed was us being given access to a whole different nature. And what is that nature specifically? 
God's divine nature. Absolutely unbelievable. So when, when Peter says it's his divine power that has given us all things pertaining to a godly life, godly life that is a, a perfect segue into the reminder that we must, saints, absolutely must be given the promises that lead to partaking in the divine nature to please God. Does that make sense? Everyone hear what I just said? This is God's divine power that enables our godliness. It's, the, it's God's divine power that makes the way of holiness even possible to us. So what does that remind us? Again, this is not behavior modification. Christ did not go to the cross to motivate us to try harder. He went to the cross to put an end to the first covenant and establish a second one. And so therefore, Jesus says to simplify this as much as he possibly can in order to partake in this divine nature, ye must be born again. You must be born again. So let's go to that text and unpack it for just a second. John chapter 3. If someone wouldn't mind, please read in verses 1 through 8. Gospel of John chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. There was a man from the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to him at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one could perform these signs you do unless God were with him. Jesus replied, I assure you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. But how can anyone be born when he is old, Nicodemus asked him. Can he enter his mother's womb a second time and be born? Jesus answered, I assure you, unless someone is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Whatever is born of the flesh is flesh, and whatever is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I told you that you must be born again. The wind blows where it pleases, and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Okay, so Jesus says clearly, to enter into the kingdom of heaven, one must be born again, or specifically twice in this passage, born of the Spirit. So do we have example of anyone else in Scripture who was born of the Spirit? Do we? No? How about Jesus? What is he talking about? Being born of the Spirit. Who was Jesus born of? We better, we better read that to confirm it. Let's go to um, Luke chapter 1. 26 through 35. Jesus says, in order to enter the kingdom of heaven, you must be born again. You've got to be born of water and born of spirit. 
You have to be born of spirit, he said. My question is, is there anyone else who has been born of spirit? Okay, let's read the text. Luke chapter 1, 26 through 35, if someone wouldn't mind. Okay, now I know this is mixed audience, so we'll just make real quick of this. It's very, very clear that Mary's a virgin. Okay, that, that, that this is not a miraculous detail that is just meant to impress us, right? There's something very specific that this means that she's a virgin. Okay, go ahead, Michael. This is the answer to our question. Verse 35. And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age. This is now the sixth month for her who was called down. For with God, nothing will be impossible. Then Mary said... Oop, that's good, Michael. Okay. So, the answer to the question, do we have example of anyone else born of the Spirit? No. Yes, Jesus. Okay, Jesus was born of the Spirit. Meaning that he was born with the divine nature that we are speaking about. Okay? So when Jesus was born of the Spirit, it was when? His birth. Right? His actual birth. It was, he, he was, um, I'm trying to be careful about how we put it, how we how we explain this. He was conceived of the Holy Spirit. He was born of the Spirit at his birth. The divine nature he had at his birth. What he is telling Nicodemus and what we are being communicated, it, he he was basically kind of putting it in the most simple language that he could. He said he said for us we have to be reborn or born again 
of the Spirit to be partakers or have access to this very divine nature. Make sense? For him, it was his original birth. For us, it is a second birth. Okay, so let's, um, let's look real quickly at three things pertaining to that, um, what it means to be born again, um, how we... Let's just follow the instruction on this. I don't have time to go through, it. obviously, an exhaustive teaching on, on the specific aspects on how we are born again. But let, let's just look at three texts to make a quick point here. First one is Luke 16. I'm sorry, uh, Mark 16. Asking the question, how Jesus has asked the question, what must I do to enter the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus said, you must be born again. You must be born of the spirit. Jesus was the one who gave us that example of a natural, of, her, of his first birth being of the spirit. He is telling us that we must go through a second birth or be born again in order to be born of the spirit, right? So the question is then, how do we go about being born again? We're just going to look at three quick tests texts. The first one is Mark 16, 14 through 16. It says this. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm looking at the wrong chapter. 16, 14. He says this, uh, later he appeared to the eleven as they sat at the table and he rebuked their disbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. And verse 15, he said to them, go into all world and do what? Into all the world and do what? Preach the gospel to every creature. Verse 16, he who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. Now go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Jesus says, go preach the gospel to every living creature. Who, he who believes and is baptized will be saved. We go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away and behold, all things become new. This is the very act of baptism is the killing or burying of our old nature, right? And, and the um, resurrecting of a new nature, a divine nature, right? So now we go to Acts chapter 2, and we see this played out for the very first time. Jesus said, in order to partake in the kingdom of heaven, you must be born again. You must be born of the Spirit. We are talking about how to be born of the Spirit. We're going to just follow the instruction. The instruction is go and preach the gospel to every living creature. Those who believe are, ba are baptized. 2 Corinthians 5 says that when we are in Christ, the old is gone and the new has come. We become a brand new creation. That is the act of baptism, of a burial and resurrection. And then the specific instruction played out in Acts chapter 2. Uh, first of all, um, Peter's sermon which we won't go over in detail in Acts chapter 2, but we'll share quickly what it does not say, what Peter does not say in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, Peter does not say, if you want to go to heaven when you die, come forward and invite Jesus into your heart. He does not say that in Acts chapter 2. What does he do in Acts chapter 2? The first spirit-filled, spirit-led presentation of the gospel 
and I encourage every one of you to read what that sounds like, okay? Because when it ends, when he ends his sharing of the gospel in verse 36, we'll, we'll, we'll go to just the last moment, the last point he makes. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? And now Peter specifically obeys the instruction. He says to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, verse 39, for the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are fall off, far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. Go with me back to First Peter, Second Peter chapter 1. Oop, I said to keep your finger in there and I forgot to keep my finger in there. Someone just read one through four, please, while I'm looking. <laughs> Simon Peter, a bondservant of the apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. What's given to us all things pertaining to life and godliness? His divine power. What does that mean? This cannot be bought. This cannot be learned at a conference. Listen to me. This cannot be learned by a book. This cannot be learned by a podcast. Right? This cannot be learned by trying harder. This cannot be learned by obedience to the law. Did everyone hear me? It cannot be learned by obedience to the law. It can't be bought. It can't be taught. It's his divine power. It comes from a single source. Continue, please. His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious what did Peter just say when he baptized people? What will you receive? The promised gift. What was that gift? The Holy Spirit. These are divinely sourced promises, divinely sourced gifts, divinely sourced power specifically given to us so that we can partake in what, Diane? Is everyone hearing what's being said, guys? This is so important. The divine nature is available to us because of the divine power given by the God of the Bible in the form of divine promises from the God of the Bible. And those promises were prophesied about and spoken about throughout the whole scriptures. Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, in our three uh, passages, Jesus, Paul, and Peter all spoke about the same stuff. 
The promise that comes only to those who are born again, born of the Spirit, represented by a death and a resurrection in water. When that happens, the promise is given. It is a new heart, complete with the laws of God written on it, and a new spirit that moves us to align with those laws. That is how we partake in the divine nature. Is that exciting to you guys? Because all I've been thinking about for two weeks is what does it mean that we get to partake in the divine nature of the God of the Bible? What does that mean? What does that look like? What does that mean is available to us? What does that mean is available through us? That's a good answer, Diane. She said much. I want to I look at perhaps just how much. All right, so let's, let's look at a couple of texts here. Uh, let's go to the book of 1 John, just a little bit to your right. Let's read a couple of texts. It's amazing to me right now how the Holy Spirit is bringing me back to te texts that we've been looking at for a number of months and, and showing so much more meaning of the words that I've been reading, the words that we've been studying, that, that I've even been teaching on so much more clarity on what's being said now. So this one we've talked about a number of times as it relates to the God of the Bible and keeping the commandments, right? But let's, let's listen to um, what's really being said here or what's being said here on, on even more of a deep level in uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 6, if someone wouldn't mind reading that. This is 1 John, chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. Please. And the question is, we're going into this uh, with uh, asking the question, what could it mean that you and I and everyone else who was authentically born again is being given invitation and access to walk in the divine nature of the God of the Bible, right? We've been shown, by the way, one example of what that looks like, right? In order to walk in the divine nature, you've got to be born of what? The Spirit. We've been shown one example of someone born of the Spirit. We've been shown one example of someone walking in the divine nature, right? Okay, so how does this text end? Go ahead, Lizzie. What? Okay, listen to what's just been said right there. Read it one more time, Lizzie. This is how the this is how this these six verses start. My dear children, I am writing this to you so that you will not sin. Keep going through six, please. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate who pleads our case before the Father. He is Jesus Christ, the one who is truly righteous. He himself is the sacrifice that atones for our sins, and not only for our sins, but the sins of all the world. And we can be sure that we know him if we obey his commandments. If someone claims, I know God, but doesn't obey God's commandments, that person is a liar and not living. 
Okay, so that first verse is, I'm writing you this so that you do not what? And that text concludes with, those who claim to be in God should live just as who did? Okay, how did Jesus live? How did Jesus live? The one born of the Spirit who had access and was a partaker in the divine nature lived how? Sinless. This text that we are reading says that if we are in God, we ought to walk just as Christ walked. Everyone hear what's being said here. We're asking the question, what does it mean to be partakers in the divine nature? We're just starting the answer. Next one, same book. Go to chapter 3. Someone please read chapter 3, 1 through 9. Actually, Lizzie, would you mind? I really like your translation. Chapter 3, 1 through 9. Okay, hold on, let me just think, let me just teach this real quick. If you are born of the world, you are born of flesh. To, to, to use John 3 as our, you know, as our foundation. Born of the world, you're born of the flesh. If you are born of God, or according to this, a children of God, you are born of what? Spirit. Okay, what does Paul say of the natural man regarding the things of the spirit? Foolishness to him. Cannot hear, cannot see, cannot submit, cannot understand, cannot partake, right? So what's being said here? If you are born of the Spirit, you're going to be way different than the world. The world will not even be able to comprehend the life that you live. Side note, but continue. Yep, we're going through verse 9, please. Okay. Everyone who sins is breaking God's law, for all sin is contrary to the law of God. And you know that Jesus came to take away our sins, and there is no sin in him. Anyone who continues to live in him will not sin. But anyone who keeps on sinning does not know him or understand who he is. Read verse 6 again one more time. Keep going. Dear children, do not let anyone deceive you about this. When people do what is right, it shows that they are righteous, even as Christ is righteous. But when people keep on sinning, it shows that they belong to the devil, who has been sinning since the beginning. But the Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. Those who have been born into God's family do not get practice of sinning because God's life is in them. 
Okay, my, my, um, I'm going to read my translation uh, of verse 9. Whoever is born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. So the seed that is in that who is born of God is what? The Holy Spirit. Right? And he says, because of the Holy Spirit in him, those that belong to God will not sin. Cannot sin. Why? Because the Holy Spirit cannot sin. Right? Holy Spirit, the seed of God in anyone who is a adopted son or daughter, the seed, the seed is given as an inheritance, right? Guaranteeing the fullness of our inheritance in the age to come. That seed is sinless, incorruptible, Paul calls it cannot sin, cannot be tempted to sin, cannot be deceived to sin, cannot be tricked to sin. The Holy Spirit cannot sin. So he said, if someone belongs to God because that seed is inside them, they will not sin. Okay, we're asking the question, what does it look like and what does it mean to us that we have been given access to be partakers in the divine nature of God? So let's remember what has God always wanted from the very beginning? What did God desire in the first covenant that has not changed and will not change and will never change? What did he want? Obedience. Obedience. What else? Perfection. Perfection. What else? A relationship with what? A special, called, set-apart people group. Right? What would he do in their lives? Make a difference. Show a distinction. Set them apart. Why would he do that? Because he wants to be known. Because he wants to be seen. Because he wants to be magnified and glorified. Right? So what God wants is a perfect people because he's perfect. What God wants is a sinless people because he is sinless. What God wants is this incredible light right? Light of a people group that have this entirely different way of being human. It's like literally their entire nature is different and their nature aligns perfectly with his nature. So his commandments make sense to them and are a blessing to them. His ways make sense to them and are not a burden to them. His heart and his desire is their heart and their desire. Is, doesn't that sound like what God has always wanted? Right? So when we read 1 John 2 and 1 John 3, and we hear about this people that do not sin or cannot sin, isn't that ultimately God getting what God has always wanted? Right? And yet it comes as a surprise to us. Right? And I think the reason it's always come as a surprise to us whenever we read verses about us being perfect, about us not sinning, I think we constantly read those passages with our and I'll speak for myself personally, our old 
pursuit of the things of God in mind. And I can easily say that there was definitely a time in my life when I was not authentically born again and pursuing the things of God in my flesh. And what does the word say about that? It's not possible. It's not possible for me to walk in God's ways, to obey his commandments, to submit to his laws, to hear him, hear his words, understand him, understands his words, love him, worship him, represent him. It's not possible for me to do any of those things in my flesh. So when we hear texts that say we are to be perfect, I think we get in our mind that means that we would have to will and discipline and white-knuckle our flesh to obey God. And if that were the case, saints, there would never be a need for a second covenant. Right? Everyone understand what I'm saying? So, this can't, so that cannot be what's being said here. So let's read a second text real quick. Diane, you want to add something? Uh, that's basically what I'm saying. We, we are looking at this invitation to be perfect, and we are looking at our flesh walking it out. I think that's what the flesh does. The flesh always puts itself at the center. Right? So we say, we, we think this is about our human nature being disciplined enough to be sinless. Is that heresy? Absolutely. Is that blasphemy? Absolutely. Is that specifically preaching a different gospel and alienating ourselves from the work of Christ on the cross? A hundred percent. Right? So we know that cannot be it. When, when 1 John chapter 2 says those that are in Christ or in God should walk as Christ did, he is not saying because Jesus died on the cross, we should be so motivated that we can bend our flesh to keep the commandments and live sinlessly. Not what he's saying. Let's go to Matthew chapter 5 real quick. Yeah. What did you say? <laughs> thought you said something I'm going to have to delete out of the podcast here. <laughs> Absolutely. When we talk about us being born again and having an intimate relationship with God of the Bible that is speaking to us in our mind and our heart about what he desires, it becomes a desire. Absolutely. Is that this? A hundred percent. Yep. Nope. You're, you're right on with me. So now let's go to um, a specific teaching from Jesus in Matthew chapter 5. If someone wouldn't mind reading for us 43 through 48 in Matthew chapter 5. We just read two texts in 1 John that sound an awful lot like sinless perfection being available to us. 
perhaps even I could say sinless per perfection being the expectation on us. Okay? We've often looked at those texts and say, well, that can't be what's being said because the flesh can't do that. Our human nature can never be perfect. Our human nature can never try hard enough. If that were the case, we would not need a second covenant. Right? But the second covenant was established because it's a better covenant and something did need to change. Our side of the equation. What is promised in the second covenant is that gifts will be given to us that will actually give us the possibility and the opportunity to partake in a divine nature. And it is that divine nature that 1 John 2 and 1 John 3 are referring to. Okay, so let's listen to Jesus here in, in Matthew chapter 5. Okay, read verse 48 one more time. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Everyone read those words with me. You see those are red, red letters in your Bible. Jesus is saying in a teaching specifically about doing what, by the way? Loving your enemies. He says, as you love your enemies, you will therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Let's go back to what does God want? What has God always wanted? A set-apart, holy unto him, walking in his ways, aligning with his statutes and judgments and precepts and ordinances, people group whose lives, in whose lives he can show himself real, show how he makes a difference, show how good he is. And what does it say in this text? What does Jesus say in this text? that we should be perfect as he is perfect. So that sounds like somehow, some way, the God of the Bible has found a way to give himself what he's always wanted. Doesn't it sound like that? Somehow, some way that God did it? Even though the whole new covenant, old covenant, was a train wreck, right? How did God do it? What did God change? What did God make available to those who are born of the Spirit? Well, he made two things available by his divine power. Two promises. That Peter says when we walk in those two promises, we have the ability to be partakers in a divine nature. And wouldn't it make sense that when we partake in a divine nature, that we would be perfect? Does that make sense? Does it make sense that when we partake in a divine nature, that we would be without sin? Does that make sense? Absolutely. 
I think we've read these texts wrong or we've interpreted them wrong because we've always thought, well, gosh, if the flesh could be perfect, there would be no need for a savior. So there's no way that that's what Jesus is teaching. But what if, rather than teaching that, what if Jesus was teaching and or prophesying that because the divine nature was going to be made available to us, that we would have, listen to me now, not um, equality with God, right? That we would not be made equal to God, but we would have moments of perfect alignment with God, right? Think about that. We read this text, it says, therefore you shall be perfect just as your heavenly father is perfect. What if he was not saying that what's available, right, is this forever equality with the God of the Bible, but rather moments of perfect alignment with him? Couldn't that be exactly what he is saying here? Because this is a teaching on what? Loving your neighbor. Right? What if in that moment when that person is loving their neighbor by walking into God, in God's divine nature, couldn't that be considered perfect? Because they are perfectly what? Aligned with the Father. Especially if that person, that neighbor is Exactly right. Would it be possible for the flesh to do that otherwise? Absolutely not. Yep. Exactly right. So all of these passages that talk about being perfect, all of these passages that talk about being sinless, right? What if what's being described to us are these moments, even if they're just moments, moments when God gets what God has always wanted, which is what a people group that share his one heart led by his one spirit, not equal to God, but perfectly aligned with him, not equal to God, but holy because he is holy for that moment, not equal to God, but set apart unto him for that experience or that assignment, right? Not equal to him, just obedient in that moment. Could that be what's being offered? Could that be the, the tip of the iceberg when Jesus talks about, or when Peter talks about this divine nature and being partakers in that divine nature? Could he be talking about a moment when we are literally so aligned with and so united to and so of one heart and of one spirit with the Father of lights that we are literally perfect in that moment? Perfect with what? The words coming out of our mouth the heart with which they are coming, the tone with which we are speaking them, the timing and the, and the message, right? What if that moment of perfection, listen to me, guys, what if that moment of perfection, when we are partaking in God's divine nature, what if that moment is when we are sharing the gospel with someone? What if that moment is when we are praying for our husband? What if that moment when we are partaking in God's divine nature for a brief 
moment in time sharing his perfect heart, his perfect will, his perfect intentions? What if we walk in that the moment that we are ministering to someone that's considering suicide or contemplating having an abortion? What if it's when we are teaching our kids on a Thursday afternoon? or on the phone with a customer service rep. Right, think about it, saints. Think about the entire body of Christ walking the earth, having these moments where we are literally partaking in God's divine nature, perfectly aligned, perfectly sinless, perfectly obedient, perfectly in one accord, one heart, one mind, one will, one God, one baptism, one church, one faith. Is that not perfect? Is that not sinless? Is that not what all of creation is waiting in eager expectation for? The sons of God to be revealed. absolutely incredible that perfection is possible that sinlessness is possible because the Holy Spirit doesn't sin and what my Bible is teaching me is I can have moments when I am partaking in that sinless perfect divine nature and this vessel which is all it is would be absolutely aligned with the God of the Bible. Is that, not, is that not the life that Christ displayed? The only other one that was born of spirit. The only other one that partook in the divine nature that housed the fullness of the deity of God in bodily form. This is what's being made available. Go back to Second Peter again, read it again. Let's read this again. We gotta hear what's being said. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of the and of Jesus Christ our Lord, as his divine power. This is only of a divine source. This power is a, of a divine source. It cannot be bought, it cannot be taught. It cannot be willed. This is a divinely sourced power that gives us all things pertaining to godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises. Promises going back a long time. Promises that have always been a part of God's divine, eternal solution for the destiny of his image bearers. That he was ultimately always going to get what he wants. A perfect humanity of one heart and of one mind with him. Holy because he is holy. That we were going to be given two things, two precious, exceedingly great promises that would change our very nature. The only two things that we 
need. Two things that we could never achieve on our own, a new heart and a new spirit that we could never take credit for, that we could never try and sell, that we could never fake, that false religion, that false gods, that self-righteousness could never attain. These are divine gifts given by divine power, given only to those whom God calls and chooses and who say yes to being his. And when he gives us these two things and when we walk in and partake in that divine nature, we are perfect. It may only be for a moment. It may only be for a conversation. It may only be for a prayer. It may only be for a prophetic word. It may only be for a teaching. It may only be for a moment of worship. But what happens in those moments? Everything. Absolutely everything happens in those moments. What happens outside of those moments that, that accomplish God's will? Nothing. Hallelujah. Thank you, God, for clarity. So, so we've talked about and um, we've even done teachings on then the struggle between the two natures, right? Paul, Paul talks about it in Romans 7 and 8 and other places. Uh, he says things like, uh, that which I will to do, I do not do. Right? And the evil which I will not to do, that I practice. Right? What is Paul giving voice to there? The struggle. The struggle between our carnal nature and our divine nature. Right? And, and I know, <laughs> I've known many in this room long enough to see you guys in that struggle. And you guys have known me long enough to see me in that struggle. And the reality is, 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 is as much as that struggle, s s struggle sucks, <laughs> and as frustrating as that struggle is, that struggle actually is literally one of the most important evidences that you've been born again. Right? When you have brokenness over your sin and when you have remorse over idolatry and you come to me over and over and over again in repentance, which some of you have, I praise God for that. The false convert does not know that struggle. The false convert does not engage in that battle. Right? So listen to me. Listen to me, anyone that might hear this. If sin holds sway in your life without opposition, and you can forsake God and walk away from him, and engage in sin without remorse, you are dead. Regardless of how alive that sin might 
deceive you into feeling. And if it has not happened yet, it will happen if you stay on this course long enough that this double-edged sword will take your golden calf and my golden calf and frickin' slice it up. And if you don't submit to that and align with that, you're dead. Regardless of how alive that golden calf might make you feel. Are you hearing me? It is only the conviction of the Spirit that proves you belong to God. It is only God's divine nature that will literally cause you to desire and walk in holiness. It's not a will of the flesh. It's not trying harder. It's no self-righteousness. It is by his divine power, by his divine promises, for his divine purposes, for his glories, and for his namesake. So what I want to know, and what I hope you all want to know, is how do we win that battle? Because I'm in it. Every day. The battle between what? The old man and the new man. The old nature and the new nature. The carnal nature and the divine nature. The flesh and the spirit. I'm in that battle every day. I see that battle in you, Kelly. I see that battle in you, Allie, and in you, Jackson, and in you, Lacey. I see the battle. Right now, the battle I can see is causing you to whether, 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 wonder whether or not you're born again. Okay, I'm correcting that right now in all of you. The fact that you sin and are broken over your sin does not prove you are not born again. It proves you are born again. You hear me? We got to be schooled on how we walk in the divine nature. We have the promises. We have the, the two tools that we could not achieve on our own. New heart and a new spirit. We got them. If you're authentically born again, you've got them. Why, why does the Bible talk so much about God's faithfulness and about the assurance of his promises for this moment right now? that if you are authentically born again, you can be absolutely assured you literally have a new heart and a new spirit. Literally making a divine nature available to you. A divine nature that when you walk in it, even if it's for moments, you will be sinless and perfect. Not for you, not for your glory, but for him and for his glory and to accomplish his purposes as his divine image bearers that is our destiny what if we could walk in that divine nature more than small moments what if we could walk in it for extended periods of time what if we could walk in that divine nature more than we walk in our carnal nature hallelujah wow don't you want to know don't you want to know how to do that if that doesn't excite you, if that doesn't cause you to dig into the teaching, holy cow, 
This is like the, I feel like it's the, it's the only uncharted territory yet to be discovered. I always wanted to be like, I always thought it'd be so cool to be an explorer and to like explore somewhere on this earth that nobody has been before. Man, what, exploring the divine nature that's available to us? If this is real, if what I'm reading is actually available to us, this is like the most amazing thing, the most amazing possibility, the most amazing adventure. And guess what, saints? The word of God specifically instructs us on how to walk in the divine nature, on things to do and on things to not do, on things to do that promote right, and encourage and cause us to partake in the divine nature and things to not do because they demote and take us out of the divine nature. Specific instructions. So yeah, this is what we're going to study for the next several weeks. We're going to start right now for one minute and then I'm done. Go back to first, Second Peter chapter 2. I'm sorry, 2 Peter chapter 1. So verse 4 ends, by which we have been, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature. I'm so grateful right now to the Holy Spirit for giving me wisdom and understanding regarding what just got read. I'm so grateful for it. To recognize these promises. To recognize why they're given. To recognize the purpose behind it. That we can be partakers in the divine nature. Hallelujah, I'm so grateful. Having escaped the corruption that is in this world through lust. So now we're going we're gonna to read the first of several scriptures that teach us how to do that. Teach us how to put it on. Teach us how to walk in it. Teach us how to partake in it. Partake in what? Self-righteousness? Nope. Trying harder? Nope. School of supernatural ministry nonsense? Nope. God's divine nature. What actually is promised, what actually has always been God's plan, it makes sense that the word of God gives us instructions how we partake in it. And in this first paragraph, we're going to learn about some things that we're to add. Okay, so let's read this real quick and listen to, listen to how this next paragraph, we're going to look at the the overall message, and then we're going to look at the first thing we add. So someone just first read uh, verses 10, uh, 5 through 11, please. But also for this very reason, getting all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue, knowledge, to knowledge, self-control, to self-control, perseverance, to perseverance, godliness, to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. Okay, so there we just got, right, on the heels of the very verse that talks about part being partakers in the divine nature, we got some specific instruction. 
right? Can we produce the divine nature on our own? Absolutely not. It's a divine gift given by divine power, right? We cannot produce it. But are there things that we must do in order to be partakers of it? Absolutely. And in this, we get a list of about, I haven't counted, five or six things that we must add. Okay, we're going to look at each of those things. Eight things that we must add. Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. Um, am I um, called? You know, why do I keep sinning? Why do I keep returning to my vomit? Yep. Um, and so I just wanted to say one of the biggest ones on that list is perseverance. Yep. Um, and um, what I've been shown is, is this is not a, you know, sprint. Yep. It's, you know, the, the transformation of the mind into a new creation is a very slow process and probably slower for some. Yep. Good. And you, you, you literally, so, so let's read the, Diane, read the rest of this paragraph in, the, in light of what Seth just said, because it's 100% what this paragraph says. Good. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted, even to blindness, and has forgotten that he was cleansed Okay, so who is he talking about there? Someone who is born again, right? Someone who is born again that does not add these things can do what? Absolutely doubt whether or not you're born again. Absolutely wonder if this is all real. Absolutely stall out and, I would argue, absolutely quit, Right? He says, if you don't keep doing these things, you can be short-sighted, leaving to blindness, literally forgetting that you belong to God. Is that scary? Holy cow. Right? Read the next one, Diane. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. What did he just say? Make your call and election sure. Right? Where does this whole thing start? Ye must be born again. To understand the invitation, saints, is to be partakers in a divine nature changes everything. It is not trying harder. It's not a slightly better morality. It's not just showing up to services and servant sermons. This is partaking in a divine nature. The only way it's possible is if you're born again. So he's saying you got to be sure of your election, right? And if you don't add these things to, to, of this list, you will see that thing fade, possibly even fall away, possibly questioning your election, possibly questioning if not you're born again, possibly questioning whether or not this is our real, possibly considering quitting, possibly considering walking away, possibly considering forsaking God entirely, This is a big deal. Finish that paragraph, please. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. You will never stumble if you do what? The things that we're getting ready to read right now. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, 
Jesus Christ. Okay, so, so the, the heart of what I'm hearing in this passage as it relates to being partakers in the divine nature is you have to know you're born again. You have to have an assurance and a knowledge that these promises have been given to you. Right? If you don't have that, what's the best you're going to do? Try to pound your flesh into submission, which will never work. This is about relying and going to a fully different source. Right? So, so the whole thing begins with, to me with you got to follow these steps to be insured of your salvation. Keep these things in place and you will be sure of your election. If you don't do these things, you will be short-sighted, leading to blindness, and sometimes even forgetting that you belong to God. Okay, and the first thing he says is do what? Verse 5. But also for this very reason, giving all, a dil all diligence, add to your faith virtue. virtue. Okay, now I wrote this big and obnoxious for a specific reason. The first thing in this list, he says, to add to your faith virtue. Now, I want to be crystal clear what he means when he says faith here. Okay, I wrote it in big letters, so hopefully you just remember what I'm about to say. The faith that he is talking about, you'll, you'll notice, he does not say to add that, right? The person he is writing that to, who are the saints, they already have that faith. So what is the faith that he is referring to in this list? The saving faith that God gave you when he adopted you, or when he gave you the invitation to be adopted, Right? That's super, super important that we get that. He's saying the faith that that list starts with, that you already have if you are born again. And that, by the way, you didn't earn. You didn't study to get it. You didn't go to seminary to get it. You didn't go to a conference to get it. If you are given the faith to accept the gospel, that is 100% a predestined gift that God gave you. That you already have if you're born again. Does that make sense? So the only reason I make such a point there is only is when you understand that, that's the only way you're going to understand the word virtue. Okay, so here's your homework because I ain't giving it to you today. I'm not going to tell you what virtue is. You're going to go study it. Okay. I recommend studying it in the original language. And I recommend specifically, remember this stupid looking bubble letter word faith. Right? Because that virtue that Peter is writing about, you're only going to understand what it means if you understand what I just said regarding this faith. And we will resume next week having studied what virtue is. Virtue we do add. Virtue is up to us. Virtue is, well, I'll just stop there. Father, I pray for everything that was from you, every word that was 
in alignment with your perfect heart, your perfect will, and your perfect desire for the saints at NCC and anyone else who will hear this teaching would take root in our hearts and bear much fruit for your glory and for your namesake. In Jesus' name, amen.